So David is heartbroken at this point. His family has been torn apart by lust and murder. His eldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar, and two years later, Tamar's brother, Absalom, killed Amnon in revenge. And now Absalom is in exile in Geshur, where his mother is from. David had a son in between Amnon and Absalom. He was Abigail's son, and he was called Kiliav or Daniel. But apparently he dies young because he's not referred to again anywhere. So I wonder if it occurs to Absalom that with Amnon out of the way, he himself might one day claim the throne. Absalom certainly hated Amnon, but he also has his eye on the throne. It's now been three years since Absalom murdered Amnon. King David seems to be pining for his son Absalom, but he can't seem to get past Amnon's murder either. I think he senses that although he loves Absalom, Absalom is a threat with designs on the throne. So where is God in all this? Clearly, murder is punishable by death, but God didn't put David to death for the murder of Uriah. David and the people paid a terrible price, but David is still the Lord's anointed king of Israel. Under Mosaic law, if a man rapes a woman, he's required to marry her without possibility of divorce. But the law also prohibits marrying your half-sister, so there was no way for Amnon to atone for the rape, even if he wanted to, which it didn't sound like he did. And that left Amnon open to the revenge of Tamar's nearest blood relative, Absalom. And now Absalom has exacted that revenge. But if Amnon couldn't atone for the rape, did Absalom commit murder or was it revenge allowed under the law? The law is no help. God seems to be silent. David clearly wavers back and forth. But the answer is not David's alone to decide. What matters most is how the people of Israel perceive the situation. And apparently the people are also split as to whether Absalom should be executed as a murderer or allowed to return to court. What a mess. Finally, Joab, the commander, decides it's time to bring Absalom home. He comes up with a plan to get David to see that this is the right course of action. Joab comes up with a story and drafts a wise old woman to present the story to David as a request. He's hoping she'll be able to use the story to get David to see the folly of leaving Absalom in exile. And I wonder why Joab is concerned. It's like, why does he care? He's fully supportive of David, it seems like. And he, see, he sees everything from a military point of view. So I'm, I'm thinking that is our clue. I wonder if he worried that Absalom might be gathering an attack force in Geshur. The wise woman comes bravely before David and she tells him, I had two sons and one day one of my sons murdered the other. All my relatives are trying to get me to hand over my sole surviving son so they can put him to death for the murder of his brother. But they're doing it because they see that if they put him to death, there will be no heir left and they will gain the inheritance themselves. King David immediately sees the injustice in this and he assures the woman he will issue an order preventing the relatives from exacting their revenge. He tells her, if anyone says anything about this to you, refer them to me and you'll not be bothered again. 
the woman presses him, swear by the Lord your God that you will stop the avenger from harming my son. And David says, I swear by the Lord that not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. At this point, the woman bravely springs the trap. Why then have you done this exact thing to your own people? You have not brought back your own son. What has happened has happened. It's spilled water that cannot be recovered. God would not throw away your son's life. God always finds ways that a banished person can be reconciled to him. I have to tell you, that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. That is so awesome. David is instantly convicted of the truth of what the woman is saying, but he recognizes she was put up to this ruse and he says, I'm going to ask you a question and you must promise to answer truthfully. Speak, my Lord, she says. And David asks, is it Joab who put you up to this? And the woman admits it was indeed Joab who was trying to bring reconciliation about. So David calls Joab and says, very well, I'll do it. Go, go get Absalom and bring him back. So Joab goes to Geshur with the good news and brings Absalom back with him to Jerusalem. But when they arrive, King David refuses to see Absalom. Why? Is David angry? Was he forced into reconciliation when he was not ready for it? Did Absalom's presence rake up intense feelings of betrayal and conflict? We don't know. The reason's not given. But Absalom remains in Jerusalem two years without ever being allowed into King David's presence. Finally, Absalom has had enough of this charade. He sends for Joab, but Joab refuses to come to him. Absalom sins again, and again, Joab refuses. Now, Absalom is not accustomed to being refused. He's widely considered the handsomest man in Israel, sort of like our modern sexiest man alive. His hair is so abundant and gorgeous that he wears it very long and still has to cut it and sell it because of its weight. If you're a football fan, I'm thinking a Troy Palamalu sort of look here. He's heir to the throne, no pun intended. He's handsome, he's special, he's charismatic, and he won't take no for an answer. So when Joab refuses the second time, Absalom has his servants set one of Joab's fields on fire. That gets Joab's attention. Joab comes to Absalom and says, what the H-E-double-L are you thinking? And Absalom says, I asked nicely and you didn't come. I have been sitting here twiddling my thumbs for two solid years and I'm not taking it anymore. I would be better off in Geshur. I want to see the king's face. If I am guilty of anything, so be it. Let him put me to death. So Joab goes to King David and tells him this, and David summons Absalom to him. Absalom comes and bows his face to the ground before David, and David lifts him up and kisses him. You'd think things would be better after that, but Absalom has not changed his spots. He's still the conniving, sneaky, narcissistic person he's been from the beginning. He gets himself the equivalent of a Ferrari in this culture and starts showing off. He gets a chariot to ride in and hires 50 men to run ahead of him announcing his coming. Make way, make way for Prince Absalom. 
You can just see him standing in the chariot, flipping his hair, right? What a piece of work. He even builds a, a cairn to himself near Jerusalem. It's a pile of stones, a monument named in his own honor. He starts getting up early every morning and setting up on the big road leading to the gates of Jerusalem and setting up sort of a welcome center. And whenever he sees someone who is going to petition the king, he tells them, oh, no one will listen to their petition in Jerusalem. He tells them that if he were appointed judge, things would change for the better and he would be sure to hear and approve their petition. Anyone could come to him for justice. Yeah, right. What a snake. So you have to wonder if David knew Absalom was doing this. Surely he had to know. This sort of thing could not be kept secret. But David does nothing about it. He doesn't react. He does not call Absalom to account. It's almost as if David has had the stuffing knocked out of him. He's older now. He has lots of regrets. I'm wondering if David is suffering from severe, persistent depression. Four more years pass. As Absalom builds up his reputation as the common man's friend against an uncaring bureaucratic government. Finally, Absalom is ready to make his move. He goes to King David and says, when I was in exile in Geshur, I made a vow to the Lord that if I ever returned, I would go to Hebron to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now remember that Hebron used to be David's own capital. It's where David was first made king. But what can David say to Absalom? It's a vow to the Lord, supposedly. He has to let Absalom go, even if he suspects a trick. Absalom invites 200 unsuspecting friends to go with him to Hebron to make the sacrifices. Behind their backs, though, he sends messages throughout Israel saying, when you hear the sound of trumpets, proclaim me king in Hebron. He also sends for Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, who is a trusted and wise counselor to King David. Ahithophel has to make a hard decision now. Which king should he throw his lot in with? Ahithophel chooses Absalom. That gives you an idea of how weakened David has become. When David hears that all of Israel has crowned Absalom king in Hebron, and that an attack on Jerusalem is imminent, he gathers all his court and all the people and soldiers in Jerusalem who are still loyal to him, and they escape on foot, heading east towards the Mount of Olives. David leaves only a skeleton housekeeping crew of 10 concubines in the palace. As they flee the city, David notices that a band of 600 Philistines are coming with them. He hails their commander, a man named Atai, and says, what skin do you have in this game? You should go with King Absalom. He's stronger and I may never regain my throne. I will understand completely and bless your going. But Atai says, I have been with you, David, since the days you were in Gath. I swear by the Lord, wherever you are, whether it means life or death, I will remain by your side. And so David allows the Philistines to march with him into exile. The peasants around Jerusalem gather along the side of the road and weep as David and his officials and his household pass by. David and his people head down from Jerusalem towards the Wadi Kadron. 
they cross the creek at the bottom of the Cadrone Valley and begin climbing the Mount of Olives. They can still see Jerusalem behind them. The priests, Zadok and Abiathar, are there, as are the Levites. They are carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them. David stops and calls Zadok forward. Take the Ark of God back into Jerusalem. If the Lord decides to bring me back, I will see it. And his dwelling place, I will see his dwelling place once again. But if the Lord is not pleased with me, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems right in his eyes. You see, David knows that only the Lord anoints kings and only the Lord deposes them over Israel. He's trying to figure out if his exile is the Lord's doing or not. But then David begins to hatch a plan. He decides to fight back, even though he's hopelessly outnumbered. If he succeeds, he'll know the Lord is with him. And if he doesn't, he will die. He tells the priests of Beathar and Zadok to act as spies and to send their sons back to him with any intelligence they can gather. And so Abiathar, Zadok, their sons and the Levites turn around and take the ark back to Jerusalem. David and his people continue toiling up the Mount of Olives, weeping as they go, barefoot and in mourning. David prays, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel, that traitor, into foolishness for Absalom. When they finally reach the summit of the Mount of Olives, another trusted friend of David's meets them. His name is Hushai. David says, Hushai, if you go with me, you will not be helping me. If you really want to help me, go to Jerusalem and tell King Absalom you were my servant in the past, but now you are his servant. Do whatever you can to derail Ahithophel's advice to Absalom. Send me word by Abiathar and Zadok's sons of anything you hear that might be useful. And so Hushai goes down to Jerusalem, arriving just as Absalom and his forces enter the city gates from the other side. Meanwhile, David and his people are just starting down the backside of the Mount of Olives when they're met by another person. This time it is Ziva. He's the man David had appointed as caretaker from Mephibosheth. Jonathan's son is the one who's crippled. Ziba's supposed to be taking care of him. And Ziba lived in the court with Mephibosheth and had 15 sons and 20 servants. He's a very important person. Well, Ziba shows up here on the Mount of Olives with a whole string of donkeys loaded with food for David and his people. But Mephibosheth is not with him. David says, what is all this? And Ziva says, the food is for you and the people to refresh yourselves, and the donkeys are for you to ride on the journey. And David says, but where is Mephibosheth? And Ziva says, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Mephibosheth has betrayed your kindness. He stayed behind in Jerusalem because he thinks Israel will finally recognize him as king. Remember, Mephibosheth is one of Saul's sons. So Ziba is lying through his teeth. He'd gone off and left Mephibosheth without any way to escape Absalom. David had been merciful to Mephibosheth, but Absalom will likely see him as a threat and kill him. But David doesn't know this. He believes Ziba and says, 
Everything I gave to Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul is now yours. As the party toils down the Mount of Olives, a man named Shimei from the clan of Saul starts running along a high ridge along the road and starts cursing David and pelting him and the people with dirt and stones. Get out, get out, you scoundrel, you man of blood. The Lord is repaying you for your bloodshed. You have come to ruin as you deserve. And the Lord has handed your kingdom over to your son, Absalom. Well, Abishai, Joab's brother says, let me kill this dog and cut off his head. But David stops him saying, Perhaps he's speaking the word of the Lord to me. My own son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. So what can I possibly say to this Benjamite? Let him curse me. Perhaps the Lord will see my misery and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. And so David and the people straggle on, pelted with stones and insults and showered with dirt until they finally arrive at their destination exhausted and weary. Meanwhile, Absalom has gathered his court around him in Jerusalem, including the wise counselor Ahithophel. Hushai comes before him and says, long live the king, long live King Absalom. And Absalom says, you're my father David's friend. What kind of friend are you? And Hushai says, no, no, I follow whomever the Lord anoints. I served your father and now I will serve you. And so Absalom, thinking this is only the respect due him as the new king, accepts Hushai as one of his counselors. The task at hand, of course, is to establish his authority and right to the throne. So Absalom asks Ahithophel, what do you think I should do? And Ahithophel says, well, you should set up a tent on the roof of the palace where everyone can see, and there you should lie with each of your father's concubines who were left here in the palace then all of Israel will understand that you are serious about this and there's no turning back. And so that's exactly what Absalom does. Now think about the significance here. It is here on this very roof that David first lusted after Bathsheba. It is on this roof that the seeds of murder were sown. And the Lord told David at that time through the prophet Nathan, that because of his sin, the Lord would cause calamity to arise out of David's own household and that he would take David's wives and give them to a man close to him. And this man would lie with David's wives in broad daylight before all of Israel. And now this prophecy is coming true in every detail. After that is done, Ahithophel advises King Absalom, if I were you, I'd take 12,000 men and set out immediately in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. Strike him now, and the hearts of his people will melt in fear. They will see how weak he really is. I would then kill only David and bring the rest of the people back unharmed. They will follow only you after that. As usual, this is really great advice. Ahithophel's gift of wisdom is reliable and is a true gift from the Lord. But David had asked the Lord to turn Ahithophel's advice into foolishness. We know that the Lord will not withdraw his gift from Ahithophel. Ahithophel's advice will continue to be wise. So how will the Lord fix this if he intends to save David? Well, Ahithophel's advice does seem good to King Absalom and 
also to all the elders of Israel. But then King Absalom says, hmm, uh, maybe we should consult Hushai, our other advisor. Hushai sees his chance. He says, the advice of Ahithophel is not good this time. Remember, your father is an experienced warrior and his men are famous fighters, as fierce as a mama bear. And your father is not stupid. He won't sleep in the camp. He'll already be holed up in a cave somewhere, safe from any surprise attack. He will attack your troops and defeat them before you even know where the attack is coming from. My advice to you is to put out a call throughout all of Israel. Build up your army of fighting men so you cannot be defeated. Then attack him. We will fall on him like dew on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. And King Absalom and all the elders are swayed by Hushai's advice. And in this way, the Lord thwarts the advice of Ahithophel. Hushai immediately passes the message to the priests of Beathar and Zadok, saying, send your sons to tell David to flee at once. I've bought him a little time to escape. Cross the Jordan immediately and group there in safety. The priest's sons, whose names are Jonathan and Ahimaaz, are hiding outside the city walls. So Abiathar and Zadok send word to them by a servant girl. But she's followed, and Jonathan and Ahimaaz are seen. The man who sees them goes quickly to tell King Absalom. Jonathan and Ahimaaz flee across the Mount of Olives and make it partway up the mountain before their pursuers catch up with them. They run to the home of a man who is an ally of David, and his wife hides the two fugitives in a wall and covers the top of the well and scatters grain over it as if it is in disrepair and is unused. When the pursuers bang on the door and demand to know where the fugitives are, she tells them they've already passed by. The men search but find no one, so they finally give up and return to Jerusalem. When the men have gone, Jonathan and Ahimaaz climb out of the well and catch up with David and give him the urgent message to flee across the Jordan immediately. Meanwhile, when Ahithophel sees that King Absalom has ignored his advice, he knows he's picked the wrong side. Absalom has missed his chance. Ahithophel knows David will prevail and Absalom will now be defeated. So Ahithophel leaves the court, returns home, where he puts his affairs in order and then hangs himself. David makes it to the town of Mahanaim across the Jordan. I've shown this on the 3D map so you can see they had to climb thousands of feet down to the Jordan and then thousands of feet up again. They are exhausted. King Absalom pursues them to Mahanaim with all his troops under the command of Amasa, another one of David's nephews, a cousin of Joab's. David musters all the men who are with him and splits them into three battalions. One he puts under Joab, one under Joab's brother Abishai, and the third under Ittai, the faithful Philistine commander. David says, I myself will march into battle with you. But the commanders talk him out of it. I think David is now well past his prime fighting age. He's not been in a battle for a while now. The commanders say, you are worth 10,000 of us. It, it won't matter if we sustain terrible casualties ourselves, but if we should lose you, 
all will be lost. And so David stands by the city gates, encouraging the troops as they march forth. And as he does, he urges them all to have mercy on Absalom for his sake. The army of Absalom and David's three battalions meet in the forest of Ephraim and there engage in a fierce battle that ranges throughout the entire countryside and into the heart of the forest. Absalom himself is there. He's riding his mule and is suddenly is confronted by David's men. As he gallops away, his hair gets entangled in a tree and he is yanked from his mule. As the mule thunders away, Absalom dangles helplessly in midair. One of David's men, seeing what has happened, runs quickly to tell Joab. Joab says, you saw this and you did not kill Absalom instantly? I would have given you a rich reward. And the man says, all the troops heard King David exhort us to have mercy on his son Absalom. It doesn't matter whether you offered me a thousand shekels, I would not lift my hand against his son. And besides that, if I had, and it had all gone sideways, would you have rescued me or, or even stood up for me? I don't think so. Exasperated, Joab takes three javelins and runs to where Absalom is dangling from the tree by his hair. Joab plunges the three javelins into Absalom's heart, and then Joab's own ten armor bearers also strike Absalom, killing him. At this point, Joab's work is done. He sounds the ram's horn to stop the battle. The soldiers cut down Absalom's body and throw it in a pit and pile up a large cairn of, of rocks over him, eerily reminiscent of the cairn Absalom had built in his own honor earlier. David, of course, is waiting anxiously at the gates of Mahanaim for news of the battle. Joab sends a runner, a Cushite, to give the news to David. But Ahimaaz, one of the priest's sons, insists on taking the news himself. And Joab says, why would you want to deliver the news of Absalom's death to David? He's not going to take it well. And he sends the Cushite instead. But Ahimaaz runs faster and reaches David first, saying, all is well. And when David asks about Absalom, Ahimaaz says, um, I don't know what happened to Absalom. Now, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea why Ahimaaz does this. It, he knew what happened to Absalom. It makes no sense to me. I, all I can think is maybe he thought better of his plan once he got there and kind of chickened out, right? At any rate, just then the Cushite arrives, panting, and tells David, good news, you have been delivered from all your enemies. But when David asks about Absalom, the Cushite says, May all your enemies be like him. And David knows that Absalom is dead. David stays at the city gates, weeping and mourning and crying, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom. And as the weary warriors return from their labors, they have to sneak past David as if they've done something wrong by defeating Absalom. David, exhausted, returns to his rooms in the city. Joab is furious. He goes to David's house and says, you have humiliated the men who just saved your life and all the lives of your household. You hate those who love you and love those who hate you. Shame on you. Get up and go encourage your troops or you will not have a single soldier left by nightfall. 
And so David, with a heavy heart, returns to the city gates and all the troops gather round him to hear his thanks and praise for fighting so hard to save his throne. And so we come to the um, end of that part of the story, the death of Absalom. David is still in exile. And um, today in our breakout sessions, we're going to just reflect on the roots of uh, lust and adultery and murder that set off this chain of events. So um, we all, I think it's like in the common culture to, to, to know the phrase, the wages of sin are death. But there's more to that verse. We never quote the second half of that verse. The second half of that verse says, but the endowment of God is unending life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And um, the first question here was basically to contrast the two halves of that verse, contrast the word wages, which is the result of sin, and the word endowment, which is the endowment of God. What did you all come up with when you reflected on that? Well, one of the things we said was wages is something you receive in exchange for something else you have done, like, like work, or in this case, sin, whereas endowment is more like a gift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to point out is that, um, I think it's Erica, I can't remember which, oh, the other one. Okay, well, anyway, what she had mentioned uh, is that uh, she had learned this as endowment being a gift, but there is a difference between endowment and gift. And, and um, uh, maybe, uh, Renee, you can help me out here, say exactly, I would have the other ones, but they're having some, their audio is having some trouble, um, that a gift is something that is given to you, but an endowment is something that's bestowed upon you. I think that's what she Yeah, a, a, a gift, you have to receive it, you have to take right. it, where an endowment is something you're just you don't do anything. You don't have to receive it. You don't have to do anything to get it. It's not earned. True. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily earned because I mean, there can be financial endowments. Um, there can be personal endowments, you know, uh, and it's not necessarily because you deserve it or, or earned it. It's, it's just, you know, like you're endowing some, uh, something to the library or the church mm -hmm. or whatever, just simply because, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm wondering Maybe. if 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 um, one of the things that the verses is, is talking about is that, you know, we speak of endowment as a gift, and it's usually something that somebody gives to someone because they are dis predisposed towards that cause or that person or that organization. Um, and not necessarily because of what that organization is or does for the person who's endowing, but more they're saying, I have confidence in you. I think you are good. I want to help you in what you're doing where wages is compensation for action, mm -hmm. good or bad. Mm -hmm. And, and I wonder- It can come with no strings. And I'm wondering if maybe the word we're searching for here is identity. 
an endowment is is bestowed on you because of who you are not what you do it's often reflective of the family you were born into right um, your endowment uh, is off that's often a word used in association with the word heritage um, it, it has to do with who you are not what you do and that seems so appropriate to link wages with death and endowment with God. And I think it offers us a perspective also on how God sees sin and why it is that God continually forgives sin. Even this murder and this lust and all this horrible stuff that we're seeing, the endowment is greater than wages always, right? And we have that endowment of life from God that we did nothing to earn and that we cannot lose. Mm -hmm. We can choose to serve death as a slave master and earn the wages from doing so it still does not remove us from God. We will suffer consequences. Life will be terrible, <laughs> but we still belong to God. It's, it's like trying to remove yourself from a family. You know, you, you, can't, you can remove yourself from their proximity, but you're not gonna be able to take the DNA out, right? That's the difference here. So um, the, ne the next question was, David was overcome with lust for Bathsheba that led ultimately to murder and the death of his own infant son. Uh, there was no excuse for what David did. And um, I said, you know, we, we experience these same kinds of intense feelings that David did, especially when we have to work with or otherwise be in proximity to the object of our desire. It seems like lust in, um, and love even are just can, can feel irresistible. So, and a lot of times it's hidden, you know, a lot of times it's hidden at first, uh, like an addiction is, but it always, you know, that seed always sprouts at some point. Uh, and, and we often realize we're on the path to death and destruction, death of, I mean, maybe literal death, but also death of relationships but we feel helpless. What can we realistically do to get off that path when we find ourselves there? I, I just want to say, I, I thought it was interesting you kind of uh, put this, uh, you associated what David did with addiction. I, because uh, uh, you know, addiction is kind of an ongoing problem uh that you that you have and is you know as far as we know maybe, maybe i'm misinterpreting but you know david had this problem or he had the sin he committed and he re repented of it as far as i know and you know he was um he didn't have what he did you know wasn't i mean did 
it really doesn't talk does it talk in the bible about david having continual problems with lust no it doesn't and that's an, an important distinction you know that's that's a good to point out um and so somehow david got off that path i mean he clearly stepped down that path some right but he got off of it what did he do that helped him get off that path yeah, uh, uh, one of the things that 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 sort of clarified for me, um, I think what you were asking here is when you did mention addiction, that you know in a twelve step program, the first step is to admit that this thing has control over you rather than you having control over it, mm-hmm. and that that recognition that this is something that I am powerless in the face of. Um, you know, sometimes others like Nathan have to point that out to us for us to see it. But the first step to getting off that path is admitting that it's driving the bus. Once you have that realization uh, that that it's controlling you, that helps you reestablish uh, some perspective um, that that, that maybe that when you have a particular desire, um, maybe there's some, you know, that that's, that is a, a result of your addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and something I just thought of when you were talking, Gail, I wondered about the use of addiction because addiction usually is something you can't help. But then you said, well, it's in our DNA from our family. You can't get away from that. Well, Sin is in humans' DNA, just like addiction is. So it does have a lot to, you can be addicted to a sin the same way you can be addicted to something else. Absolutely. So that may, that just like clarified it. Yeah. And actually I've seen where the seeds of addiction are planted early in your life and they don't, they don't uh, come up until late. They actually don't manifest themselves until later in your life. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I personally but, have wrestled with some of those. Yeah, you know. Um, but one thing I will put out there, and yes, seeking help. One thing I told my group, and you know, people can strongly disagree or agree with me. You, you hear a lot of people, a lot of Christians say, just. Hand, hand it over to Christ. He'll take care of it for you. <laughs> that seems, that's a cop out. It is. Me. It takes a lot more elbow grease than that, doesn't it, Ross? <laughs> yeah, we're deep in the grease. <laughs> I mean, that is not to belittle the power of the spirit. But we have to choose constantly. I think the 12-step programs are so powerful because of that, because in those programs, you commit to, if you can do nothing else, at least showing up every week, right? At least showing up where you can be helped, at least continuing to make yourself aware that this sin is something that you're finding, you know, that you are wanting, continuing to place before the Lord that you want to be off of this path 
help me. And one of the prayers of uh, journey, Woody and I belong to the same same uh, faith community. And one of the wonderful prayers of journey imperfect faith community is help me, help me, help me. What is it? Thank you, thank you, thank you. What is, what are the three? There's three of them. Yeah, those are from Anne Lamont. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Help me, help me, help me. Oh, and I'm not, I'm blanking on the third one too. But there's, yes, and so it's, it, it's just, um, you know, sometimes you can't say anything more than that, you know? Um, but just that, it's part of this, the whole cloth of our faith that God will meet you wherever you are. And if that's all you can do is lay on the ground like you've been run over by a bulldozer and say, help me, help me, help me. That is enough. So the third uh, question was um, in our answer to the last question, we are trying to cope with the fruit of sin, right? It seems like it would be a lot more effective to deal with it before it grows large enough to bear fruit. And as I was reflecting and you know, writing these questions for us to talk about, it seemed to me that David and Absalom's sin was rooted in a sense of entitlement. And um, I wondered what the antidote is to that sense of entitlement. I thought of gratitude. Always, uh, always be humble to others and the Lord. Um, would be one one thing. Um, and I was along that same line, Ross, where I said gratitude has the power to turn uh, entitlement or arrogance or whatever you want to call it into humility there's that word again humility that's it yeah i think it's also important to surround yourself with people who are going to keep you accountable you know people mm -hmm. who are going to um uh, help you stay on that straight and narrow path you know if we talk about 12-step programs that's continuing to go to those meetings, continuing to have, to be able to say, you know, I'm still clean or, or whatever, some, something that's external that is going to help you, a community that is going to help you. Yeah, and I think also there need to be people in your life who have the courage to speak truth to you, knowing that, I mean, in the case of Nathan, he knew David could probably just have him killed. Um, in the case of loved ones, close friends or family members who know that by speaking to you, if you're not ready to receive that information, um, that that could be the end of your relationship. But they care yeah. enough about you that they are willing to speak that truth regardless of how you're going to respond and we, it's really important for us to have those kind of people in our lives to help us even begin to see that it's a problem and then have the support of others to help, like you said, Julie, help keep us accountable. You need, as we move forward. Yeah. Another, uh, 
I want to say, uh, you know, roots, you talk about other roots besides entitlement. Roots uh, can be in in the society and culture you live in, mm-hmm. and they can they can greatly obviously they can greatly influence what happens to your what happens with your behavior. That's that's a good point, and I think that um, recognizing that can be another weapon in fighting this these kind of roots um, because it's it's like gigo garbage in garbage out if you look at the environment that you're steeping yourself in what kind of what kind of tea are you in <laughs> you know and what are you putting in your mind what are you looking at what are you spending your time on what are you spending your money on? Those are concrete choices you can change. You have control over that stuff. And every little bit that you can do can really help. And I want to flip this around for the um, last question here because we're about out of time. But um, I want to flip it around and say, I'm so glad that you all brought up the word community. Uh, and that you need people around you that will hold you accountable and will pick you up when you fall down and will not reject you, <laughs> you know, um, but do it in love. What can we do to be those kind of people in someone's life? Have to be a good listener. I think you have to uh, be non-judgmental. I think you need to be like God, meet those people where they are at at that particular time. Um, to just be open to whatever is going on in their lives, um, to accept them ex- as they are, to try and be as unconditionally loving as you can. Yeah. Um, even if they are saying things that are really awful, you know, I mean, things that you don't want to accept at all, even if, the, you know, they are saying things that are really offensive, um, but to just try and understand where they are coming from and accept them for who they are. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, try to be a dependable, sorry to interrupt, okay. a dependable, non-judgmental person, but with boundaries because yeah. you don't want to get entangled if, if they're gonna you know you want to help them you don't want to judge them but you don't want them to entangle you uh in in in, in their unfortunate happenstance true and then that also means that you have to have a support system as well you know to to try and walk this alone is um, can be exhausting and and just life sucking, and so if we're going to be that person for somebody else, we need to have people who are going to hold us up and feed strength and yeah. and hope into us, so that we have the ability to do that with um, the person we're trying to help. Right. I think that some of it is also being self aware of when the addiction or whatever it is 
that this person is fighting is something that is a danger to us personally. Um, and, and when it's not, you know, sometimes it's just not, you know, and, and so you're in a really great position to be able to, to be there and support and help and, um, and, and maybe light the way to another path or another way of being. Um, but if it is something that you yourself, like Ross is saying, are, are struggling against falling into uh, or struggling staying out of, um, it may not be that you're the person that needs to be the one helping. Uh, there are other people. That's why it needs to be a community. You know, you're not the savior. Give a referral. Get a referral. <laughs> That's right. But the, and the, the other thing is um, a, a word I want to throw out there is uh, vulnerability. I think one of the most powerful things we can do to make ourselves accessible to people who are hurting and people who are struggling is to make it clear that you also are a wounded helper and that you also struggle, have struggled, will struggle. And that therefore there is no judgment or condemnation. So if we, and that is part of that word humility, because if we put forth this facade to the world and our friends of, we have got this all under control. If we have our Facebook face on, then um, (laughs) uh, we are not being humble. We are not being honest. And we are not making ourselves accessible. And I'm not saying that you have to be painfully open all the time and, you know, gross about this. But it has to do with actually truly in your heart being humble and being ready to admit. There's a wonderful verse um, in, in uh, I think, one of the Peters in, at the end of the New Testament about never thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. (laughs) That's a good verse. (laughs) Yeah. And my point out, you know, that's great, Gail, you bring that up because it is so counter culture. Yeah. Um, And also something to remember uh, something else in the Bible, maybe, you know, the first will be last, the last will be first. Yeah. Good one. This is, these are, when we can start pulling up these kind of quotes, those are themes. Those are things we're seeing. That is a theme. Humility is a big deal. (laughs) Um, And it has, and it has a lot of impact. It has a ripple effect. And all we've been talking today is a ripple effect of that. It, It is so unfortunate that more and more, even Christians, are not recognizing how counter our culture is to the kingdom. Yeah, it's, it's as upside down now as it was when Jesus came. So many similarities. So I'm going to leave you with those thoughts to ponder in your heart, um, both 
from the side of the sinner who needs help, <laughs> which we all do, and from the side of the helper who has sinned, <laughs> which we all have. Um, and I bless you this week, and I see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.